friends. Thank you for tuning in to the weekly City Church San Francisco podcast. Throughout the fall of 2020 on this podcast, we'll be taking a look through the Bible at what happened to people when things fell apart in their worlds, sort of like what many of us are experiencing right now. We're calling this fall series When Things Fall Apart because, well, things feel like they're falling apart. So let's talk about it. We invite you to lean into these stories each week to embrace the intersections where these ancient stories collide with our current collective world and our own personal lives. As always, we thank you for being a part of City Church Online through this podcast. And we invite you to join us live each Sunday at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or Twitch. Thanks. The scripture reading today is from 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 7, and chapter 21, verses 1 through 21. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, daughter of Ai. And Ishbael said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. The Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had tried to wipe them out in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make expiation that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put to death anyone in Israel. He said, What do you say that I should do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be handed over to us, and we will impale them before the Lord at Gibeon, on the mountain of the Lord. The king said, I will hand them over. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Mirab, daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Mahophilite. He gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they impaled them on the mountain before the Lord. The seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it on a rock for herself. From the beginning of harvest until rain fell on them from the heavens, she did not allow the birds of the air to come on the bodies by day, nor the wild animals by night. When David was told what Rizpah, daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the people of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up. On the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa, 
He brought them up from there, the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who had been impaled. They buried the bones of Saul and of his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the tomb of his father Kish. They did all that the king commanded. After that, God heeded supplications for the land. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask now that you would meet us as we gather now. Give us grace to hear from you. Help us to believe that you have something you want us to hear, to trust, to surrender to this morning. Help us to believe that you have seen too this moment existing right now. So help us to be present to your presence. Help us to sit here under your gaze knowing that you know everything about us and your response is always to move towards us to love, restore, and heal. And so gracious God, help us to believe we are safe in your presence. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. They didn't want this story to get out, I don't think. I mean, the Samuel narratives are there to establish a point, to reassure anxious Israelites in exile that the line of David is still the promised line through which God will bless the world. But this story, wow, this story stands in contrast to the triumphant David stories preceding it. Not as embellishment, nor as correction, but in resistance to the official narrative favored by the king, recorded by his scribes, and loved by the people. Somewhere in the circle of ancient Israel's scribes, there lived a determination to tell the alternative story that lived in the memory of those outside the circles of might and privilege. This truth was uttered by a woman, Rizpah, representative of the powerless, the downtrodden, the voiceless. This is how prophetic tradition lives, survives, and overcomes in the scriptures. And before I say another word, I am deeply indebted to Austin Channing Brown for this sermon. She preached the finest sermon I think I have ever heard in my life. And she preached it on this text at the Evolving Faith Conference that I attended in October of 2018. So I'm channeling what she taught me on that day. The Rizba narrative is indeed a jolt to our expectations, as Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar, correctly notes. And the jolt comes not from King David, but from the extraordinary actions of Rizpah, daughter of Ai. She, not David, is the central figure in this intriguing narrative, and her courageous act of solidarity, her outrageous love, her embrace of risk for the sake of justice and humanity, and her determined challenge to the powers becomes an intrusion into the world others would like to pretend is untroubled until it isn't. When things fall apart, Rizpa insisted. And everything was going so well on the surface. That's what the king's court would have you believe. The successes and not the failures should be the focus here. Not the sexual assault, the endangering of citizens, the arrogance, the rape, the incest, the murder, and death that swirl around in this royal family. 
reading these Old Testament historical narratives does feel like the Game of Thrones without the dragons. <laughs> so let's let's keep it triumphant and paint the king in the best possible light, except Rizba insisted. A famine strikes the land. The rains have stopped. The land is dry for three years. David inquired of the Lord, it says, which really meant that he went to his prophets and his priests and theologians of the royal court. And he comes back and says, the Lord said there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, backstory for just a moment. Saul, David's predecessor, was on the throne and apparently had some kind of non-aggression pact with the Gibeonites who purely by the grace of the king of Israel lived in the territory of Israel amongst them. For some reason, and we don't really know why, Saul unilaterally, unilaterally broke the pact and David inherits the problems of Saul's regime. And the logic was that Saul had committed blood guilt and that was what was causing the famine. So David goes to the offended party and he asks, how can we make this right? I'll do anything you ask to make restitution. Great, they say. We don't want money. We don't want treasures, weapons, anything material. What we want are human bodies. What we want is to execute seven of Saul's descendants. Interesting. How convenient that ending the famine means ending the lives of potential threats to David's throne. Nothing to see here, folks. No, uh It's just, just what it takes to end the famine. This is how we all stay safe. People have to die. This is what it takes for national security. Some people have to die. Children have to die. If we want to be more secure, even children must suffer, we can hear them saying. Perhaps that was what some of the internal thinking of David was. Being drunk with power numbs you to human loss. Or to quote the former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, as reported widely this past week, we need to take away children from their parents at the border in order to be safe. No matter how young the children, added the Assistant Attorney General at the time, Rod Rosenstein. This ancient story really isn't all that far from home, is it? Never mind the decisions made under the political power, no matter how odious and toxic it is to the soul of a nation. So David obliges and hands over seven boys all descendants of former King Saul. And they are impaled and hung on the hill of God. They are innocent. They have done nothing wrong. They simply belong to the wrong family. They are snatched from the streets and from their homes and they are gone for the good of the nation. Sit with Rizpah as she has told the news that her two children were not just to be taken away, but to be ritually killed. What must that moment have been like for her? Devastating, but not surprising for her. 
because she is a woman who has spent her life as simply a pawn at the mercy of the pleasures of the powerful. Rispa knows how the men operate. We first see her in that first verse that Kim read from chapter three. Saul dies and as Saul's widow, she becomes a plaything in the politics of succession. As Abner with his eyes on the throne rapes her because the one who sleeps with the wife of a king is one step closer to the throne. When those games of thrones are finally over, Rizpah is discarded like a used rag. But she raised her boys, and then they took them. For years, she had been caught between the conniving, unhealthy, retributive politics of nations, but with the death of her boys, she's had enough. In verse 10, it says, Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth, spread it on a rock for herself from the beginning of harvest until rain fell on them from the heavens. She did not allow the birds of the air to come on the bodies by day or the wild animals by night. Sackcloth was a symbol of grief, and Rispa turns it into a resource for demanding the dignity of her boys impaled on the hill. And she will stay there, protecting all seven bodies with her own. Will Gaffney and her amazing book, Womanist Midrash, says, Rizba bat I watches the corpses of her sons stiffen, soften, swell, and sink into the stench of the decay. Rizba fights with winged, clawed, and toothed scavengers night and day. She is there from the spring harvest until the fall rains, as many as six months, sleeping, eating, toileting, protecting, and bearing witness. And she is up there, not just for the two boys of her own, but for all seven of them. As Reverend Judy Goodrow commented on this passage, if you remember only one thing about this story, remember this. Rizpah protects not only her own two sons, but all seven victims. The statement she makes is this, only two children on those crosses are mine, but I don't care. Every child on the cross is my child. As long as there is one single child on the cross of pain and indignity, I will stand up and I will fight for that child. A crucified child is my child. So Rizba is angry, red hot anger. And I want you to know something. Her anger is not wrong. It's not Rizba being negative. It's not destructive. It's not violent. Her anger, in the words of Austin Channing Brown, points to what is wrong and what could be made right. Imagine her up there on that hill. What were people saying about her? You know, she has every right to be mad, but I don't like her tone. <laughs> that protester up there scares me. Is she hysterical? It's not new that oppressive political policies met with anger is never welcomed. But 
anger itself is not destructive. It is instructive if we will listen. If we will listen to the anger of our siblings and communities of color instead of judge them. If we will listen to our siblings trying to get their families into a safe country to protect their children. If we will listen to our trans friends who daily hope to survive. If we will listen, the anger of nonviolent protesters is not wrong. Uncomfortable, yes. Instructive, absolutely. RISPA does more than resist, does more than protest. RISPA insists for six months, <laughs> day after day. Imagine her swinging sticks and throwing stones and screaming and staring down animals as she puts her own life at risk day after day and night after night. Exhausted, she continues. I think every day she saw those rotting bodies and remembered their humanity. How they used to play at her feet. How they used to laugh. How many times she comforted them when they were troubled or hurt or fell down and she picked them up the first time they walk. Just like Trayvon's mom remember his smile. And Mike Brown's mom remembers his laugh and Breonna Taylor's mom remembers her hopes and dreams just like Emmett Till's mother insisting that the casket be open, insisting her son's humanity and the injustice perpetrated against it be seen. Rispa insists on their humanity. Others look at those rotting bodies and were disgusted, not Rispa. Unlike David, she is not objectifying the young men. She does not see sacrifices for the sake of peace. She sees cold-blooded murder. For her, it's not just a political spectacle or even a national disgrace. It's a human tragedy. It's not only indignity and shame heaped upon the boys on the crosses. It's an assault upon the dignity and worthiness of God. She is driven by compassion and by righteousness and by justice and by the facts that she knows she is right despite her powerlessness. In the words of Austin Channing Brown, I'll just quote her a couple of times here. While she fights, of course, the people are talking about her. Poor dear, lost both of her sons. At first, they probably pity her, maybe even silently support her, but only under their breath, never with their bodies. But the comments become increasingly vicious. She has lost her mind. She's hysterical, a woman gone mad. And then they start to get a little creative. She's a snowflake, a social justice warrior. She's toxic. She's just trying to divide us all. She's just practicing identity politics. She doesn't really care about those boys. She's a heretic up there with those decomposing bodies. God can't be pleased with her decision to live there. I've seen her up there and she's lost all civility. She's the real racist. 
Just watch how intimidating she is. She isn't a team player. She's always looking at the bad side. Such a cynic. She's an enemy of the nation. She doesn't care about the greater good of everyone, just her people. I mean, don't all lives matter? They talk and they talk and they talk. And while they talk, Rizpah fights. This God you claim for this deed of murder, she must be saying, is not the God I know. It is not the God of Sarah. It is not the God of Hannah or of Hagar, the slave woman, the mother of Ishmael, as dismal in the household of Sarai as Rizba herself felt in the household of David. The actions of this amazing woman somehow bears witness to the true voice of God. And David's misguided, murderous, and convenient understanding of the will of God is changed. In verse 12, it says, when David was told what Rizpah, daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul, the bones of his son Jonathan, from the people of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan. He brings the bones of Saul and Jonathan home, takes the bodies off those crosses, and gives them a decent burial. And so finally they come to rest. Jonathan and Saul and the seven boys. What must that day have been like for Rispa? Again, sit with her, hearing the chariot wheels coming up the hill, horses and wheels in the dirt and commotion. She emerges from her makeshift tent to see what? Stewards of the king to take down the bodies. She had spoken truth to power, and power finally concedes. And well, here we are, all these many years later. On the other side of Jesus and his impaling on a cross, a Roman cross. And the voice of Jesus, I believe, in this story calls us out to follow him in the tradition of Rizpah, who when things were falling apart, insisted. Rizpah, who stands in solidarity with the oppressed, who insisted on justice, who took the risk of resistance in public day and night. And she did this alone. Nobody joined her. Her protest exposes all those who were complicit with their silence. Rispa, like Jesus, would speak truth to power. Rispa, like Jesus, would not settle for the status quo. Rispa, like Jesus, publicly risked her life on behalf of not only her children, but all children everywhere. Rispa, like Jesus, had no political power. Rispa, like Jesus, knew her power, was in telling the truth by faith. So Jesus followers, you were called to be modern day Rispas. I'll finish the way Austin Channing Brown finished her sermon that day in October of 2018. I declare you Rispa, 
who fight for racial justice. I declare you RISPA who fight for the incarcerated. I declare you RISPA who work for the rights and well-being of queer people of color. I call you RISPA who refute at every turn the message that the Latino community is to be feared. I call you RISPA who fight for indigenous lives. I call you RISPA who recognize the suffering in the AAPI community and resist model minority myths. I call you RISPA who fight against Islamophobia. I call you RISPA for you have the courage to be angry and the love required to pursue justice, to step into lost causes, to speak truth to power. I call you RISPA. And today, if your evolving faith means standing before tombs and believing in the possibility of life, I want you to know that you are not alone. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for preserving this story, this often overlooked story of this courageous, amazing woman, Rizpa, who insisted. Give us grace, we pray today, to have her courage, to have her persistence, to her resilience, her moral conviction. Give us today to have just an ounce of RISBA in our lives. Help us to know that when we take up the tradition of RISBA, we take up the tradition of Jesus, who calls us to follow him like RISBA. And so give us grace to do it in whatever way you may be calling us to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.